0: about 10 miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 8 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's zionpb where you'll find all of our posted sermons, as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website, which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. As we move on into the book of Job, we come to the first challenge that Bildad gives to Job. Bildad's arguments are based on history and experience of the ancient ones, and he seems to promote some kind of Christian karma way of thinking. The idea that for every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction. For every sin, there's an exact punishment here in this life. But Bildad's view of God is no better than that of Eliphaz. And his legalistic arguments don't do anything to comfort Job. In the first half of this sermon we primarily look at the arguments that Bildad made and then we're going to move into Job's answer and we'll see that Job does have the correct understanding of man standing before God. So join us today as we look at the encounter between Bildad and Job. But first we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. morning want to go back to the book of Job. Now as you turn to the eighth chapter I realize that sometimes it may seem cumulative what we're covering in the book of Job and it is but it builds upon itself and it builds uh, sort of ultimately it's going to build to a crescendo when the Lord finally comes upon the scene. We probably will move a little faster after this message on Bildad and the first message on Zophar but I want to cover what these miserable comforters of Job are telling him and I want us to see just how miserable Job has become and and also we need to understand how that all of these characters in this book of Job except God of course are off base just a little bit on their theology you know actually that's probably the wrong way to put it their theology is mostly correct but the way they apply it is is just a little bit off their understanding of what's going on is limited their their conclusions that they leap to are conclusions they shouldn't get to and so so I want you to bear with us as we go through this book because, again, this book is the oldest book in the Bible. It was written before the book of Genesis was written. and It doesn't take away from the inspiration of the book of Genesis. I don't mean it that way, but I just want you to understand the first time a man sat down to write the words of God in an inspired way is when someone wrote the book of Job. I'm not sure exactly who, but someone wrote the book of Job. And this is the first scripture that we can go to, to start understanding from a written standpoint, the nature of God. And if we misunderstand the book of Job, we will misunderstand the nature of God and the cause and the nature of our sufferings in this life. So the book of Job, here we're in the ninth uh, sermon on the book of Job, beginning here in the eighth chapter. Now, remember that Job's friends are not the example of how we should think, but they're the example of how we should not think. They had drawn up their own idea of God. And I'm, I'm reminded of a story I heard recently about a little boy who was busy drawing. He was drawing lines on a page, and it was some grand thing he was drawing. And his father comes in the room and said, son, what are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing God. He just kept drawing. He said, well, son, don't you know that uh, nobody knows what God looks like? He said, they will when I get through drawing him. (laughs) (laughs) Now, sometimes we draw our own picture of God and think that that's what God looks like. But like that little boy, we might be just a little... Uh, overstating the matter. (laughs) We might be a little too prideful about our grasp of God. Listen, I hope today at age 54, I have a much better understanding of who God is and what his nature contains than I did when I was 14. But even if I live to be 444, I will never be able to comprehend God. He is so far above me that his weakness is greater than men. His weakness is stronger than men and God doesn't have any weakness. But the point that Paul was making over there is that even if God had a weakness, it would be stronger than anything man could come up with. His (laughs) folly his foolishness is wiser than men and god has no foolishness there's no folly in him but if there were it'd still be wiser than anything you and i could come up with you see god is so much greater but eliphaz and bildad and zophar and even job thought they had a handle on who god was you remember eliphaz appealed to his own experience he came in and crushed the spirit of Job because he was telling Job, Job, in my life, and obviously, obviously Eliphaz was older than Job. In fact, I believe all three of these men were older. Elihu, we're going to see, appears to be younger, but they were all saying, Look, I'm older and I'm wiser, and, 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 and I have seen in my own life how God is. And it's the idea, it's the legalistic idea of cause and effect type of thinking. You know, in other words, You come into someone's situation and you try to evaluate it for them. So your child's gone astray. You must have been a bad parent. You know, Uh, uh, you've got cancer. You must have been living bad. You know, you you die. Death occurs. Well, there must be some sin in your life that causes it. They're even going to accuse Job of being the cause of his children's uh, deaths. So Eliphaz comes into this idea, and, and they all have this idea of some kind of Christian karma. You know, karma is the idea that what goes around comes around. For every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction, so to speak. That's, that's, listen, that's the laws of gravity. That's not the nature of God. <laughs> now, now, don't get me wrong. Let's, let's not go too far down that path and, and forget that from an eternal standpoint, God is indeed just. And sin absolutely must be paid for. But remember that not only is God the great judge of all, He's the one who loves His people with an everlasting love. And we're going to see in this, in this book of Job that the gospel message is being preached. The gospel message is being preached. In fact, we're going to see it a little bit today. And this idea of Christian karma is not correct thinking. So Bildad comes on the scene next. And he's been hearing all that Eliphaz has said. Now Bildad, we've already given an overview of him. He appeals to historical experience, the wisdom of the ancients, in promoting this idea of cause and effect. So let's look at Bildad's arguments beginning in chapter 8. We first, he first starts talking about the nature of God. Verse one, then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, how long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Now, let me just stop here and say what he's saying to Job is Job, you're a blowhard. <laughs> you're just talking to hear your head roar, as My mama used to say, you're just, it's just like the wind. Now, where's the comfort in that? You remember, Job is suffering greater than any man has ever suffered in their experience in that day. And he is, he is sobbing at, down in the dung heap, scraping himself with pot shards and grieving the loss not only of his stuff, but of his family and ultimately of his health. What comfort is there in this? These, these men, Bildad particularly, is more concerned with, with, with the justice. Of God than with the needs of his friends. And as I said, justice, we're going to see it's true. That's true theology, but it's a wrong application. It's a wrong application. Let's keep reading just for a few more verses. Verse three, doth God pervert judgment or doth the almighty pervert justice? That's a rhetorical question and the answer is obviously no. Again, I say that is true theology, but the problem is he's applying it in the wrong way. In Psalm 33 and verse 5, we read, he loveth righteousness and judgment. It is true that God is a just God. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 tells us he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Abraham asks the question in another rhetorical sense. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God is indeed a just God. But Bill, Dad, you've forgotten about something else. Over in 1 John, you can turn there or not, I'm just going to quote it. 1 John chapter 4 and verses 8 and 16, we read about God being, in fact, we're told God is love. Now in John, 1 John 1 and verse 5, we're told God is light. That means He's on the right side of justice. He's always, God is light. He's not, He's, he's no, there is no darkness in Him at all. That means there's no imperfection, there's no unjust uh, way about Him, there's no unrighteousness with Him. But yet, on the other hand, He is love. He is light, and He is love. And how do you reconcile these two Potentially conflicting attributes of God. Well, the answer is clear to us in 2021. Psalm 85 and verse 10 said, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Where did they do that? On the cross of Calvary. They came together. The justice of God and the love of God, the light of God and the love of God came together in a way that fulfilled see, both his Righteous nature and his loving nature. It came together on the cross. But Bildad says God doesn't pervert justice. In verse 4, listen to this. This is so harsh. If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression. If I would seek unto him at times and make supplication to the Almighty, we'll come back and finish that in a minute. But notice what he's saying. God doesn't pervert judgment. Job, your, your children are dead because of something they did. Now, how comforting would that be to come to you when you've lost a child and you say, well, he died because he did this, or she died because of that. Hey, it even is worse because Eliphaz even suggested it was because of something Job did. Now, listen, we know that everybody dies because of sin. Don't, don't miss that fact. Why, you know, why does some tragedy happen? Because Adam sinned. Sin is the curse of this world. We are cursed by sin and we die because of sin. And I'm not forgetting the fact that sometimes we can do things to hasten our own death. I get that. You know, if I go out and get in my car and decide to go to Birmingham and decide I want to drive uh, north and the southbound lane of I-20 and 59, it's probably, it's probably going to be my time to go, as they say. You know, we, we hear that a lot. Oh, it's my time to go. Well, I heard this story one time about this old preacher who had a friend who was a pilot. And uh, most people that believe that there's a set time to go don't really believe it. <laughs> and this, uh, and this, this preacher uh, was uh, one of those that believed that there was a set time to go. And his friend asked him, he said, uh, Preacher, how about flying up with me in my plane today? He said, oh, no, no, sir, I'm not flying in no plane. And the, the pilot looked at him and said, well, Preacher, don't you believe that you're not going to go till your time comes? He said, I sure do. But he said, I'm afraid we may get up there and your time comes. <laughs> See, most people that, that say they believe that don't really believe it. Because, you see, there are things we can do that, uh, that would fly in the face, that would tempt God, that would fly in his face. Now, now I, I don't mean to get off on this too much, but I just want to say that certainly from the mind of God, he knows exactly when we're going to die. But from our standpoint, we don't know that and we shouldn't be thinking, well, I can do whatever I want to do because I'm not going to die till my time comes. Well, like that, like that preacher said, you may get out there driving northbound on the southbound lane and your time comes. <laughs> but you see, here he says he's accusing Job's children of sinning and that being the reason that they lost their lives. Now, I want to say to you this, You re- remember this. Remember this, Job is not suffering for any sin that he's committed, right? We've seen that already. Job is innocent of any sin that caused this suffering. Now, understand what I'm saying. Job is still a sinner, and we're going to see that. There's some pride in Job that God suffers uh, these, th- these uh, things to come upon him to get rid of. But Job is not in the first instance suffering. You can't point to a sin. Oh, Job did this and therefore he's suffering, you see. There's a, but, but remember, he's still a sinner. And there's only ever one man who suffered being truly innocent. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But now look at, look at verse 5. <laughs> Here, as as Bildad is bringing up the nature of God to him, he said, If you would seek unto him betimes and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of uh, of thy righteousness prosperous. Notice what he's saying. If you'll just confess your sin, God will awake for you. This... This kind of thinking will lead us to believe that we have to do something to get back into God's good graces. Brother Buddy's mentioned this before, that he had a concept even, even as a child of God. Now, we're talking about children of God. We're talking about someone who's been born again. We're not talking about doing something to get born again or doing something to get to heaven. But have you not felt the same thing I've felt before as a born-again child of God? that I'll commit some sin and immediately I'll be just hunkered down thinking God is going to get me for that. Now certainly God ought to get you for that. But how many times has he passed over that sin? How many times has he dealt with you in grace and mercy? It's happened to me over and over. And I've come to understand that that it's not a one for one thing. It's not tit for tat in God's service. It is not that God is going to uh, immediately, He's not wielding the lightning bolt ready to just zap us every time we, we, we go astray. We shouldn't go astray. And if we engage in habitual sins and stay going down that broad path, we will end up with destruction. But God is so merciful. He is so gloriously uh, graceful that even in the Old Testament, He dealt with His saints in grace and mercy. You remember, You remember what Jesus said? He said, I'm not come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. He said, the healthy don't need a doctor. Jesus said, the healthy are fine. It's the sick that need him. God doesn't shoo the sick away and tell them to get better on their own and then come to him. No, he says, come to me when you're sick, child of God. Come to me when you're a sinner. Come to me in, in, in confession. But Bildad here can only see the justice and the wrath of God and says, You've got to get right with God. And if you'll just do these things, he'll get you back into his good graces. Verses uh, 6 and 7 and 8 here. If thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should greatly increase. See Bildad saying, if you'll just do these things, God will bless you. Then Bildad turns to the experience of the past. Notice in verse 8, he says, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days are upon earth as a shadow. Shall not they teach thee, and tell thee, and utter words out of their heart? In other words, Job, you need to listen to the wisdom of the forefathers. You need to listen to the wisdom of the ancients. Look back upon history. Bildad is a traditionalist. He's looking to the past. But I want to say to you this morning that just because something is old doesn't always make it right. When God said to Jeremiah, seek the old paths, he wasn't talking about your daddy's paths or your granddaddy's paths or even your great, great, great granddaddy's paths. He was talking about going back to the Word of God, the old paths that God has set down. Why do we worship like we do today? If we went back to our great grandfathers, uh, grandfathers and great grandfathers day, we might be looking like some of the denominational churches of the world, but our purpose in worshiping him in simplicity, worshiping him with the simple truth of the gospel is because we go back to the word of God as far back as it goes. In Nehemiah's day, they, they decided to have, uh, to, to keep one of, the, one of the feasts over there, the Feast of Booths, and... And they got to reading how that uh, in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, they were supposed to build little booths and go dwell in them for a certain number of days. And they hadn't done that since Joshua's time. If they just went back to the time of Hezekiah or even the time of David, they wouldn't have gone back far enough. That's not an old enough path. The only old path that works is the path that comes out of the word of God. That's why we don't worship him with pomp and circumstance. That's why we don't have some kind of complicated worship service here because that's not how they did it in the old ways, in the old paths. Bill Dad here is saying, go back to the old days, but, but you've got to measure the old days by the truth of the Bible. You know, I'm thankful for these older men and women in this church. I'm thankful for the gray hair. You know, that's... That's something that we're told can be an honor. In fact, Proverbs 16 and verse 31 says the hoary head, that's the the gray hair. That means an older person is a crown of glory if, if it be found in the way of righteousness. Just because someone's old doesn't mean they're right. There's, you know, I've said this many times before. My grandmother used to say there's no fool like an old fool. (laughs) And we've seen that happen, haven't we? In many cases Uh, unfortunately, uh, I know some people like that, but I'll say this to you, beloved. If you'll be older and wiser, and that means fearing the Lord, you know the fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom, then that will be a crown of glory. Bildad says, based on the experience of the past, God always does right, and you wouldn't be suffering if you hadn't done wrong. And then he turns to the experience of nature. Look at verse eleven, and and verses eleven through eighteen is is what we would call a, a, a wisdom poem. It's a in the Hebrew it's written in a way that it's, it's, this is why Job is called is part of the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature is not that it's got a bunch of wise sayings in it, but it's the way it's written. It's using allegory and analogy and some types to to teach us some truths. And verses 11 through 18 are like that. And he's saying in these verses, even nature teaches us about the justice of God and proves that your sin is the cause of your suffering, Job. Verse 11, can the rush grow up without mire can the flag grow without water whilst it is yet in his greenness and not cut down it withereth before any other herb so are the paths of all that forget god and the hypocrites hope shall perish in other words job plants wouldn't wither if they got enough water there's a cause for them withering away job your life is withering away for a reason There's a reason that you're suffering so. And then he turns to a spider's web. Verse 14, whose hope shall be cut off and whose trust shall be a spider's web. He shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. How many times have you ever fallen into a spider's web and it caught you and kept you from going to the ground? Now, many times a spider's web has caused me to act a fool and uh, look like I'm... Uh, maybe hurt myself because I walk through it and I get it and I start, you know, acting crazy. But, uh, but, but a spider's web, that's part of the insidious nature of a sp- I hate spider's web. We'll be walking through the woods and those things are attached to you and you can't get them off. And you feel, you know, just constantly. And it's going to stay there the rest of the day, by the way. You know, you'll feel it all day. But you see, the point is this. A spider's web will not support you. You can't lean on it and expect it to hold you up. Job, your confidence is going to crumble. You're having this confidence that's misplaced in yourself. You're saying you didn't do anything, but you really did. Just like that spider's web, you're going to just fall to the ground. In verse 16, speaking here now of a a plant again, he is green before the sun and his branch shooteth forth in his garden. His roots are wrapped about the heap, and seeth the place of the stones. If he destroy him from his place, in other words, if the plant's plucked up, then it shall deny him, saying, I have not seen thee. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others shall grow. In other words, a green plant plucked up from its place proves, Job, that you are not placing your confidence where you should. If you pull up a green plant, I don't care how good it looks, I don't care how... Lush and green it is, it will die. And God doesn't, look, look at verse 20. Behold, God will, will not cast away a perfect man. Neither will he help the evildoers. In other words, God doesn't pluck up perfect men. He doesn't uproot you. He will not uproot you if you're perfect, if you're doing right. You know, verse 21 through 22. I, I, I read this and I almost get angry. Because there's there's a certain preacher that I turn on television and it makes me mad to see him walk on the stage. Not because he's better looking than me, not because he's more eloquent than me, but because he's teaching untruth to God's people. He tells them, oh, you can have your best life now. The prosperity gospel. Look what Bildad says, till he fill thy mouth, talking about God, he will fill thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing. They that hate thee shall be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. Job, if you'll do right, you can have your best life now. If you'll just have enough faith, God will bless you. And the proof that you don't have enough faith, and the proof that you are a wicked sinner is that God's not blessing you with stuff. That's basically the prosperity gospel. That's the Joel Osteen teaching of this world. And I hate it because it misleads God's people into thinking that their their stuff is proof of their faithfulness. And it also leads them to despair when they don't have stuff. You know, things aren't going real good for Job. And while Job's a sinner, he hadn't done anything particularly to merit this. In fact, he was living a faithful life. More faithful than anybody else in this day. The prosperity gospel fails in the face of Job's suffering. And that's what he's saying here, Job. If you'll just do this, just confess and acknowledge what a sinner you are and that you need to change your ways, you can have your best life now. That's baloney, child of God. Because we know that Job is not suffering because of some particular sin he's done. Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com.